Well, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, where we'll pick up at verse 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 20, reading verses 17, 18, and 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we pray now for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might properly read, mark, and inwardly digest this solemn passage, these solemn words of our Lord as He once again tells us of His coming death. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would open this to us and apply it to our hearts, that we might marvel at all that He has done for us. For we pray it in His strong name. Amen. Well, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament is, to use a, a somewhat redundant statement, uh, a book of two halves. In the first half, we have a fairly straightforward historical account of the life of Daniel, this faithful young man who stood committed to God in the face of a, a fiercely pagan society. The first half of the book of Daniel is, is inspiring. It's it's exciting. It's a thrilling story of God sustaining grace in the midst of almost overwhelming odds. But when we come to chapter 7, things change dramatically. I think for most of us, as we are reading through the book of Daniel in our, in our devotions, it is when we come to chapter 7 that, that everything in that book suddenly becomes a lot more confusing. The, chapter, the first six chapters are, are, are wonderful. They're inspiring. They're, they're thrilling. You know, the story, not just of a, of a hero in the faith, but, but more profoundly of a, a God who is with His people, even in their most severe trials. The first six chapters carry us along, bear us along on a, on a compelling storyline, but with chapter 7, things change so dramatically, we almost get whiplash as we're, as we're reading it. We move from this inspiring, thrilling story to suddenly finding ourselves in a world of strange and abstract things, mysterious dis descriptions of obscure creatures. And we don't ease into these bizarre prophetic visions that God gave to Daniel. In fact, right in the beginning of chapter 7, right at the beginning of that second half of the book, we come face to face with, with what can only be described as an absolutely terrifying scene. Right? You remember Daniel chapter 7, it begins with the, the Mediterranean Sea being, being whipped up into this great storm, and out of that storm appears these four grotesque and terrifying beasts. We have a lion with eagle's wings, but its wings are soon taken away and it morphs into a man. Its power and its glory, its dominion and strength suddenly removed. We have a bear 
the symbol of brute force that appears ready to attack, depicted as as having uh, ribs still stuck in its teeth from its previous conquest. We see a winged cat coming out of this storm. No house cat, of course. It's It's a leopard with four wings on its back and four heads, right? Without a doubt, one of the most terrifying of these beasts, the already impressive speed of the leopard, now augmented and enhanced by its wings and its foreheads constantly surveying for what it's going to devour. And the final beast, the symbol of just absolute raw power, with iron teeth and ten horns ready to take over and devastate whatever it desired, trampling whatever it didn't consume. The second half of the book of Daniel begins with this terrifying picture that quickly takes us away from that inspiring narrative of the first six chapters and and really strikes fear and and dread into us. But in in the midst of this tumultuous picture, and I'm getting to a point with this, in the midst of this tumultuous picture, you remember Daniel looks and he sees a vision that is characterized by perfect peace and control. In contrast to that chaos, in contrast to the brutality of those initial visions, Daniel sees God sitting enthroned in a heavenly courtroom. Named there, you remember, the Ancient of Days, a reference to his eternal constancy. Daniel sees God, this Ancient of Days, enthroned upon a fiery throne, bringing judgment to bear upon all the earth. And as the judgment books are are open, two things happen. The dominion of those grotesque and powerful beasts is taken away, and then a new character appears. This character is given an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that shall never pass away, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, a character that is called the Son of Man. Now, what that means is not immediately obvious. Daniel himself doesn't know what to make of this vision, so he asks for an interpretation, and the interpretation that he's given gives us a gateway into understanding what all of it really means. The key to unlocking this mystery is that we're told that these beasts represent four great kings and four great kingdoms that shall arise on the earth, preceding the establishment of this everlasting, peaceful kingdom of the Son of Man. Now, of course, we're not told exactly what kingdoms those beasts represent, and it's one of these passages that we have to be careful that we don't get distracted by the details. We have to remember this is not a a puzzle given to us so that theological sleuths can play their games and try to figure out how this all fits with history. Instead, what is being given is this picture that's designed to impress upon us one thing, that in spite of all the mighty kings and kingdoms that rule on the earth that can seem so powerful and undefeatable, over and against them, God reigns supreme. And in His perfect time, He will show His glory in the establishment of this ultimate kingdom ruled over by this messianic Son of Man. The core point of it all is that no matter how powerful these kingdoms and empires were and and are, their power and their rule is limited. No matter how great kings might be, there's a greater king who sits enthroned on a heavenly 
throne who will come to establish a greater kingdom. Now, of course, this isn't a series through Daniel. So why am I telling you this? Well, because it's essential context for understanding the first century expectation of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. The first century Jews were looking for Daniel's son of man. They were looking for Daniel's son of man to come and powerfully defeat their enemies and who would put this seemingly unopposable Roman Empire to death and establish his perfect, peaceful kingdom. That's what they're looking for. They, they know these prophecies. They know these images. And they're, they're large in their minds and in their hearts. And they're looking for that Son of Man to come and crush that final empire and establish his own kingdom of peace and security and, and, and freedom. And that's why the disciples have been having a really hard time understanding what Jesus has said. As He has told them that, yes, He is indeed that Messiah, but that He must also go to Jerusalem to die. Three times already Jesus has told them of His impending death. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, right after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, we're told Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Right? That was the dramatic point at which Peter rebuked Jesus. Right? So far was that statement from their understanding of what the Messiah would do, who He would be, that Peter's, the only conclusion Peter could come to is that, Jesus, you, you got this wrong. You, you were doing so well, Jesus, but let me just come and just correct you a little bit. Right? The Messiah is not defeated. You're the defeater. The Son of Man is not the one who's killed. The Son of Man is the one who puts to death. But of course, Jesus wasn't wrong. And again, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, speaking of his relationship to John the Baptist, who he had just equated with, with Elijah, he says, I tell you that Elijah's already come, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man must suffer at their hands. The Son of Man doesn't suffer. Right? Daniel chapter 7 shows us a Son of Man that is powerful and in control and ruling, the one who brings suffering upon his enemies. But Jesus says the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. They can't understand it. A third time in Matthew 17, in verses 22 through 23, we're told as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. It made no sense. The Son of Man is not delivered. The Son of Man is the deliverer. But it's here in the fourth prediction of His death that Jesus gives His disciples the fullest description of what they are about to encounter when they enter Jerusalem. The scene opens with the observation that Jesus and His disciples are going up to, to Jerusalem. Now, that has been the subtext ever since they left Caesarea Philippi, right 
from the high point of this gospel, both the literal high point, the most northerly point of Jesus' ministry, but also the theological high point, the point of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But ever since they have left Caesarea Philippi, the subtext has been that they're on the road to Jerusalem. They've been making their way south, and the strong implication is that they are going now to Jerusalem. But here, Matthew states it clearly, definitively, and he does it in order to, to heighten the drama. Right, by, by beginning this little vignette, by explicitly stating that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, Matthew's making it clear to us, his readers, that they're now on the final leg of this journey. He is saying to us, understand, readers, Jerusalem now lies just beyond the horizon. Soon they're going to enter that, that holy city. And it is at this point that Jesus takes his disciples aside, presumably aside from the crowds that would have now been gathering on the roads around Jerusalem, the, the pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. As those crowds are increasingly converging on these roads around Jerusalem, Jesus takes His disciples aside, away from them, and for the fourth time, He tells them what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And He says to them, it, it's, it, it, it won't be pretty. Right? They were going up to Jerusalem at the time of one of the great festivals of the Jewish liturgical year, even the, the preeminent festival of the Jewish liturgical year. When Passover was the, was the festival, you remember, that God had used to punctuate the Jewish calendar to stand as this great memorial feast to all that He had done for them by bringing them up out of Egypt as if on eagle's wings to bring them to Himself as His own unique and distinct people. And it was this festival at which Israel very deliberately remembered their union with God through His gracious salvation. And so it was a time of, of celebration and joy, a time of great thanksgiving for salvation past, but you understand it was also a time of great expectation of a salvation future, of a day when there would be a greater exodus, a greater salvation in which the Son of Man would bring His people out, out of this sub to this Roman Empire, and finally and fully bring them into His promised land. And so, Passover was a time of heightened nationalistic fervor. We've said many times before that that's why Pilate's in Jerusalem. Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Pilate lived in Caesarea Martima. Pilate, in charge, governor of this region, was smart enough to know that a villa by the sea is a lot more desirable than living in the heart of Jerusalem. But every year at Passover, he would move his headquarters into the city because he knew it was this, this tinderbox of nationalistic fervor. At any moment, a, a revolution could be, could be sparked that would threaten to destabilize the, the region. These Jews coming in, crowding into the city, remembering how God had saved them from an oppressive empire in the past, were led to anticipate the coming of the Son of Man and this, this coming deliverance from their current oppression. And so no doubt as the crowds that would have surrounded them on this road 
were going up to Jerusalem, they would have gone up with a spirit of joy and celebration and anticipation. And the twelve disciples would have likely been right there with them. This joy, this heightened expectation, and from all that they know about Jesus, all they've seen of Him in His ministry, all they have heard of Him on this, on this road down from Caesarea Philippi, we can imagine these disciples are thinking, wow, imagine what's going to happen in the next few days. What does all this mean? We're going to enter Jerusalem, and we're going to enter with the Son of Man. What's going to happen? Is it going to be like when David entered Jerusalem? When David went in to the capital, then known as Jebus, the capital of the Jebusites, and he went in and, and he powerfully overtook that city and established it as his kingdom. Is that what's going to happen? Are these 12 disciples going to be Jesus' mighty men? Are they going to be the ones that will stand with him as he goes in to retake this city from the pagans and establish it as his holy kingdom? They knew Jesus was the Messiah. They understood Him to be Daniel, Son of Man. And so now that they were going up to Jerusalem, what did it all mean? Was this the time when Jesus would reveal His glory as that great prophesied King and destroy this last great empire just as Daniel had said? Despite everything that Jesus has already told them about what will happen in Jerusalem, Despite the fact that Jesus has repeatedly told them that He is not going there to lead a rebellion against the Romans. Despite the fact that He has repeatedly told them that He is going to Jerusalem and He will be put to death there. Despite that, they still haven't understood. But what Jesus has been saying to them is so far from their preconceptions, their presuppositions about the Messiah and His work, that they just have not been able to hear what Jesus is saying to them. And so here, as they are about to enter the city, Jesus takes the disciples aside once again, and He explains what is about to happen. Yes, He confirms they're, they're right. He is the, the Son of Man. They're, they're correct. He is the man that Daniel had spoken of. He is this, this greater king who will rule over a greater kingdom. Jesus has no problem taking that title for himself. In fact, it's one of his favorite titles for himself. But he says, understand what this means. Understand for what it means for when we enter into Jerusalem. It's not that I'm going in to crush this empire. We will go into that city, and this empire is going to crush me, he says. But notice how here Jesus then gets a lot more specific. And he says, it's not just the Gentiles who will rise against and defeat the Son of Man. It will, it will primarily be the very people that he has come to save that will be the ones to condemn him and crush him. Daniel's vision was clear. This was a message of hope to God's exiled people as they sat in the humiliation and seeming hopelessness of the Babylonian exile. The word of hope was clear. It broke into their darkness as this great shaft of light as God promised that He will defeat the enemies of His people and establish under the Son of Man this perfect kingdom in which they will find perfect peace and joy and 
security. But here Jesus says to his disciples that while he has indeed come as that prophesied Son of Man, he's going into Jerusalem to be crushed. And it won't just be the Gentiles who will do it. The children of Abraham themselves, the very people who would have held on to Daniel chapter 7 under Roman rule as a word of hope for them, they they will not only be complicit in his humiliation and murder, but they will be its very leaders. Jesus says it will be the chief priests and the scribes, it will be the leaders of the Jews who will stand at the fore and lead the charge against God's anointed king. Instead of seeing him as the great source of hope that he was, instead of rejoicing that the word of God was coming true in their day, they would discredit him. They'd write him off as a charlatan. They'd condemn him to death as a blasphemer. And it would only be then that the great empire would come in as if with its great iron teeth and devour him, mocking him, flogging him, and finally submitting him, subjecting him to one of the cruelest, most humiliating deaths the world has ever seen. That's what awaits them in Jerusalem. As they are on this road with Jerusalem just over the horizon, that's what awaits them when they enter into that city. Jesus says to his disciples that when they go, when they enter through those city gates, it won't be in a demonstration of power and victory, but rather what awaits him is humiliation and defeat. Jesus and his disciples will walk into that city, but he will be driven out of it, carrying his own cross to the place of cursing to be lifted up on that tree. Now, the disciples don't understand this. Their selective hearing throughout this Sermon on the Road has been impressive, but here Jesus lays it all on the line, and they just can't comprehend what he's saying. And hard on the heels of this profound and, and solemn and sorrowful prediction, we'll see next week the sons of Zebedee will send their mother to ask Jesus for places of honor within his kingdom. Their minds, their hearts seemingly unable to process what Jesus has just said. After all, how can this be true? It just doesn't seem to square. A crucified Messiah is surely an oxymoron. How can Jesus be the Son of Man if He has not come to destroy empires, but is instead destroyed by an empire? And so it seems that just as they have with the other three predictions, in response to what Jesus says, the disciples just look at Him with a bit of a blank stare unable to comprehend, unable to process, unable to know what on earth anything that Jesus has just said really means. And I think if we're honest, we're not that far away from them. This is confusing to us. How on earth does this fit? We can read this and we can wonder, was Daniel speaking about the advent of Christ, his, his first advent, or was he talking about his second advent? Right, as we read Revelation 1 verse 16, we, we read of a, a Jesus there that seems to fit more with what Daniel's saying. 
Right, you remember the picture of Jesus that we have in Revelation 1.16? There's no gentle Jesus, meek and mild there. It's Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, and his face burning with a radiant holiness, shining like the sun. And we read that, and we think, well, surely that's what Daniel's speaking about, the second advent of our Lord when Christ returns to defeat evil and establish his perfect kingdom. But Jesus helps us. He gives us his own commentary in verse 28. How are we to understand Jesus as Daniel, son of man, as this glorious king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? And you understand that is the vital verse that unlocks this mystery. Because when we understand this like that, we see that the choice is not either or, it's both and. Was Daniel talking about Jesus' first advent or his second advent? No. He was talking about Jesus' first advent and Jesus' second advent. A day will come when Jesus will return as this Revelation 1.16, absolutely terrifying king who is burning with holiness, who will cut down and destroy the enemies of his people. And the day will come when he will finally and definitively defeat all those who convince themselves of their own strength, of their own performance, their own permanence, when the mighty men of the earth will fall before the feet of an almighty Christ. That is what Daniel's talking about, but it's not only what he's talking about. You see, in order to understand this properly, in order to understand Daniel 7 properly, in order to understand the kingdom of Christ properly, in order to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of Man properly, you have to understand that in your sin, your ultimate enemy is not other people. In your sin, your ultimate enemy is not wicked men or evil empires or corrupt systems or false religions. In your sin, your ultimate enemy is not other people. Your ultimate enemy is God Himself. And so, for Jesus to establish that great messianic kingdom as Daniel's Son of Man, He must save us not simply from other people. He must save us from God. He must save us from the righteous wrath of God that burns against us in our sin. And so, for Jesus to be the Son of Man and establish that kingdom, He had to first, before He defeated all His and our enemies, He had to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Otherwise, He would be establishing a kingdom in which He would be the only resident. And so it is exactly as Daniel, son of man, that Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and face the opposition and the tyrannies of the powerful. He would willingly yield to their terrors and be crushed by them because it would be on the cross that they would send him to, that he would give his life as a ransom for many, not buying us back from the devil, but standing in our place facing the wrath of God, the wrath of His own law, 
so that we could be freed from the slavery and condemnation of our sin, our sin that has exiled us from God, so that we could be brought back and enjoy all the blessings of His full and perfect kingdom, where we will dwell securely, ruled over by that revelation-powerful sword mouthed, radiant King who will protect us forevermore. What Jesus is saying to His disciples in this fourth prediction of His death is that He couldn't be the Son of Man if He didn't go to the cross. Now, the disciples are still a long way from understanding this. In fact, it won't be until after Jesus' resurrection, that they will understand what it all means. But as we, the reader of this gospel, hear these words, what Matthew is doing is is putting everything in context for us. The sermon on on the road will soon be over. We have just, just half a chapter left before Jesus will enter Jerusalem and the end will begin. But here in this fourth account of his death, along with that commentary in verse 28, we see that as terrible as the next few days will be in Jesus' life, it is all part of this wonderful plan to rescue us from all of our enemies, to rescue us even from God Himself, so that we might dwell secure with God in His kingdom forever. Things will soon get dark, very dark. But here we see that while weeping may tarry for the night, joy will come in the morning. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for our Lord Jesus, our great and glorious King, who is perfect in righteousness and holiness and justice and goodness and in truth. Lord, we thank You for Him, our great Son of Man, who rules over His kingdom, a kingdom that was established in His death and resurrection, and that will be brought to its fulfillment at His his return. We thank You, Father, that He was willing, compelled by His love for us, not simply to defend us from those who would do us harm, but to stand in our place before the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed of our transgressions, so that we could be given His righteousness and made fit to dwell within His kingdom. Lord, we rejoice in our Savior, and we pray that You would give us hearts that would see Him bigger and bigger every day, that we would marvel at His saving work, that we would anticipate His his return and seeing this glorious kingdom in all of its fullness. Lord, forgive us for our earthliness. Forgive us for being distracted and consumed by the things of this world. Lord, lift our heads, lift our hearts, that we would look to the horizon, expecting our Savior's return and rejoicing in the hope that is ours by faith in Him. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.